0: You're listening to Red Nation Online.
1: You're listening to the Paul James on Soccer Podcast. Commentary and analysis by Paul James, former Canadian soccer player, television analyst, coach, and member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, here we are with another episode of the Paul James on Soccer Podcast, and it was a busy week for Canada's professional teams with both league matches and the kickoff of the 2011 Canadian Championship Tournament. Let's start off by talking about the Voyagers Cup Championship. Like me, I would expect that Wednesday's matchup between Toronto and Edmonton was your first chance to get a close look at FC Edmonton. What did you make of the match, and what would you make of the Edmonton team?
0: Yes, well, first uh, point I'd like to make, Steve, is the fact that, uh, you know, have another Canadian team in the, uh, in the championship tournament, and I think it's, um, you know, it's fantastic, really, for the development of, of Canadian soccer, and, uh, and what a great thing to see nine Canadian players playing for, for Edmonton, and, um, you know, even more as far as their squad. You know, I think that really is, uh, you know, a great reflection on the, uh, the ideology and the attitude of uh, the owners in Edmonton, the coaching staff, and overall, I have to say this. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it was it was about the sending off that really influenced the 3-0 result. But um, I have to say this. I thought uh, Edmonton did a good job. I thought they played well. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that the scoreline doesn't really reflect, I think, how, how, uh, how good they actually are, that they're, they're a decent team. They're not as good as Toronto FC, even with 11-on-11. 11 11. I think it's going to be a, a tough grind for them. Uh, on uh, this Wednesday in the second leg but, um, but overall I thought they showed well I thought they did a good job uh, in possession of the ball this is the thing that I thought got, they got caught up on first of all I, you know it was questionable that could have gone either way I mean it was a yellow card for sure but the guy won the ball Seiko won the ball he just followed through a little bit and I thought the referee was, uh, was, was unfair and I think he spoiled the game so early You know, a good stern warning, and a yellow card would have uh, been sufficed there. Um, But, you know, I've seen games where where players for a similar tackle have been sent off. I just thought it was a harsh decision. It sort of spoiled the game. But tactically there, the coach, um, I think, got it wrong. You know, know, if you lose a player and you're playing total games, this is like a European game, you know, where the away goals count, I mean, to, to actually go full out and attack and play three at the back, and they really went after Toronto FC after that. But it was a mistake. It was suicide to do it as far as the tactical approach for the game. You have to know this is a two-legged affair. You have to know you're in trouble. You have to take a defensive posture and not attack at all costs, which is almost like they did. Uh, it was suicide in the end, and uh, and they got caught you know, for that and conceded uh, three goals. It was too bad because they actually look a decent team. They really do. They're athletically fine. Uh, On the ball, they almost look better than Toronto FC for that 10-15 minute uh, minute period. But then experience and numbers forward, they just couldn't compete and got caught on the wrong side defensively because of a few players at the back. And uh, in the end, Toronto FC clearly... You know, out of cancer, won that 3 but, nil, um, but overall, I thought it was a good showing from, uh, from Edmonton. Too bad about the uh, sending off.
1: Both TFC's Aaron Winter and Edmonton's Harry Sincraven are Dutch. What do hirings like that mean for Canadian soccer? Will they improve the technical proficiency of Canadian players? And what do they mean in terms of the development of Canadian coaches?
0: The right attitude. They, they come from from a country where ideologically they, it's about possession, it's about first touch and passing the ball. If you can't do those things, then you're not going to play for these guys. So, and I think that was very evident from uh, Sink Raven there with uh, with the way that Edmonton approached the game. But both, you know, and this is the important point, and it's a humbling experience, or it's humbling, I suppose for them, for me to say this, but they're both inexperienced coaches. It's one thing to come from a country where that's the ideology. It's like corva coaching, right? corva coaching, you go into soccer clubs and you teach uh, the corva way of playing, which is uh, the technical ability, great little skills, great little moves, a composure on the ball. But coaching in games and winning championships is an awful lot more than that. You know, and we can't be blinkered by the fact that uh, the Dutch philosophy translates into actually winning games and winning tournaments. So I think that's the balance. If you if you really look thoroughly at the coaching uh, um, history of both uh, both those coaches, uh, they're very inexperienced, and so it becomes to decisions. And there, when you talk about Sink Raven, you know he I, it appears that he wasn't experienced or hadn't given it enough thought that what happens if we go a player down. Whereas experienced coaches, they have absolutely every detail covered, that if they lose a a player in the game, they know exactly what they're going to do. And it seems like Edmonton didn't know that in the game because they just opened themselves up completely, which was suicide. So, you know, there's two aspects of the coaching. One, the ideological part. I agree with you. I think it's good for the the Canadian game, because ultimately, if you're looking at a long-term vision over 10 years, 15 years, it's not just about Canada qualifying for World Cup. It's about qualifying and doing well and realistically developing players to to have composure of of the ball, to be able to play with the, the passion and the mentality while playing that technical way. Uh, is absolutely a must on the the world with the world stage, so that's a long, long term process. And I think you see in the beginning of it, the tricky part for those guys to uh, keep their jobs in Canada. It's ultimately about winning. Is how do you get that balance of of providing that development while still somehow winning, so that uh, the fans stay on your side, the confidence of players is maintained. And, uh, and that's the tricky part. But uh, overall, I think, it's, I think it's healthy. I think it's good. I have no problem with it. And, and I was quite excited in patches of how Edmonton played. It's just that naivety that uh, needs to be resolved. And uh, hopefully we see that on uh, Wednesday from both teams.
1: A number of TFC bench players, Mikhail Yurusovsky, Jao Plata, Richard Eckersley, and and williams got starts against Edmonton and had fine games. Playing against a 10-man second division side, should we be guarded in terms of assuming anything too enthusiastic about the deaf players on Toronto FC?
0: Yeah, we should. And I think that uh, we're going to talk about Toronto
1: FC and Seattle. So I think that's the uh, the benchmark there. I mean, that's the antidote to what you saw on Wednesday night against uh, against
0: Edmonton. But it's good. You know, I mean, uh, I'm glad to see Vinter giving the younger players, uh, you know, a chance to play Platter and Cordon and and I think they did well, and I think it's uh, Eckersley came in and showed that he had some potential. I mean, he's, he's pacey out wide. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's healthy, and I think that, um, that uh, you can begin to groom some depth as far as your squad goes. But we need to be guarded. I think that uh, Toronto FC supporters now uh, are not getting suckered into the fact, if you win the Canadian Championship, that uh, it's still only four teams, still inexperienced teams. Uh, at the end of the day, you just got to look at where Vancouver and Toronto SC are CR in the MLS to see that uh, winning a Canadian championship is what it is. It's uh, it's a minor accomplishment because uh, getting into the playoffs of the MLS, uh, going far in the CONCACAF Champions League is much more a reflection of your ability as a team and as a club. So. Yeah, we need to be guarded, but at the same time it does give the opportunity to rotate players and give them some playing time, which is uh, so, so crucial in that development process, I think particularly for the younger
1: players. In the other Canadian Championship match, Vancouver scored an away goal and came away with a one nothing victory over Montreal. What, what were your impressions of the match?
0: Uh, I thought Vancouver are a notch above uh, above uh, Montreal, if not two notches. I thought they did well. They went in there to win the game. They were, they were tough. They were strong. They attacked. I thought Russell Tebow was excellent. Uh, Terry Dumfield was a great leader, uh, popped up and scored a goal. And here's the, here's the thing I like about Terry Dumfield, and, and he, he also did it in the uh, Columbus game. And I've talked about it before. You know, he makes runs into the box. He's prepared. He times his runs well. He sees space, and he's gone. And that, you know, when it, because he's like that, is that he has an impact on the game. That's impacting the game as a midfield player. And it's, uh, it's almost a rarity these days to find a player that's prepared to consistently make runs. He doesn't always get the ball. But uh, when you make those runs four or five times a game, right into the heart of the penalty box, you create chances and you end up scoring goals. That's Terry Dunfield. I thought he did well. But overall, I thought Vancouver were, were, were good. Camillo, uh, Camillo, uh, Montreal had a, had a, a trouble with, but it's uh, it's uh, a highlight for them. It's it's they've got to read the writing on the wall. Joey Saputo and Nick Desantis need to read the writing on the wall. They've got to go some. They've got to start to change the the dynamic of their team to be able to compete next year in the MLS. If they don't read the writing, they don't have. I don't think they have a good enough squad to compete based on what I saw the other night. And so they need to address that. They need to be, to be really smart and know really truly what the quality is uh, when you get into uh, Major League Soccer. You know, in years past, they, they, you know, they've beaten the MLS team, uh, the, the second division tier teams beat MLS teams. It doesn't mean that they're able to compete uh, you know, in the MLS and be able to, uh, to win the thing. There's no way that that's going to happen. It's like the FA Cup in England. That uh, you know, you get a, a Division One team beating a Premiership team or a Championship team every once in a while. It doesn't mean that they're at that level. It can happen on on a given day. And I think Montreal, you know, they competed well. They had some chances. There's there's no doubt they have some players that belong for sure. But overall, I thought uh, Vancouver did a did an excellent job in that game, and uh, and it was a great uh, away goal that they got. So. Um, you know, it, it was good, and again, it was great to see uh, two teams going at it, two Canadian teams going at
1: it. One of the young Canadian players that I'm very high on is the aforementioned 18-year-old Whitecaps winger Russell Tebert. The two-time Canadian U-17 player of the year was impressive against Montreal, and I'm wondering what your impressions of, be- of him have been thus far in the MLS.
0: Yeah, well, as a Canadian, you know, my, I think there's a lot of passionate soccer Canadian people out there, and I'm one of them, and, um, you know, I'm excited about that, because what I'm excited about is that he's almost a full-package player. You know, he's talented. You can see he's got talent. He's got a great left foot. He can play in a number of positions, probably centrally, out wide, and he influences the game because he he creates things. You know, he's a clever player on top of everything else, and I've spoken to their staff about it is that he's got a great attitude, and you can see it in his work ethic, he's, uh, he works hard, he's got a great approach to training and so that, to me, it's like the Will Johnsons, you know, it's like the, the Patrice Bernier's, I know Patrice coached him years ago, and uh, that was Patrice, and that is what counts you know, same with uh, Atiba Hudson, Josh Simpson you know, I've not said that before and I'm not vlogging, it's but uh, it needs to be, you know, it needs to be said all the time that uh, Russell T- but is from, is cut from that cloth, and that's ultimately what you want. So I get excited, you know, as an observer and a pundit here when I see uh, those kind of players doing well and giving the opportunity, and, and fair dues to Vancouver, and again, it just highlights, you know, a little bit of what's amiss in in Toronto FC. I mean, he was part of their academy and, and then leaves to go to Vancouver. I think that says all that needs to be said, that uh, there's, there's plenty of work that needs to be done at Toronto FC because you can't lose those kind of players on your doorstep, particularly when you have them. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited about him. I thought uh, he's, he's terrific. And from what I saw with Vancouver and Columbus, you know, uh, I'd imagine that um, as the season elapses, he's going to play more and more in their first team in the MLS. And I think that's healthy for Canadian soccer. That's, it's encouraging. It's exciting.
1: I was a little disappointed that he didn't suit up, or at least didn't see the pitch against Columbus, and I thought he was missed. You know, he is 18 years old, so, you know, is there a particular way as a coach you have to go about breaking those players into a professional lineup?
0: No, I think it's decisions, you know, and maybe on reflection that, uh, that Tate Thornton would, would maybe change that, you know, and do it differently because uh, there's definitely some room. You know, uh, I know we're going to talk about uh, Vancouver-Columbus in, in a minute, but down the right side, I thought uh, Vancouver very poor against Columbus. And so they could shuffle a deck, and uh, and it's just a matter of time. It's just timing. You know, maybe they're resting and we're trying to, uh, you know, just not to take care with how they, they develop him and not give him too many games. But uh, for me... I think he can fit in right away, and so just throw him in, play your best players when you can, and, um, and I think he, he's going to earn his spot, and I think he deserves it, but uh, he fits in, Russell Tebow, it's a good question, and um, I think it's a decision now for the coaching staff to make about, you know, when they fit him in and when they play him, but I think he's better than Wes Knight from what I saw the other day.
1: Moving on to the MLS league matches, TFC delivered what can only be described as a real stinker on the road against Seattle on Saturday. What do you think happened after C- TFC had delivered two impressive performances against Columbus and FC Edmonton?
0: Well, first of all, I think we need to um, uh, I, I, again. I think we need to be to be careful how we gauge the Edmonton and Columbus uh, victories. First of all, Columbus. We'll talk again about them in a minute. But Columbus, I wasn't overly impressed with them uh, in in Toronto. I think they're not as good as what they've been in the past. So it was an okay performance Toronto uh, got against them at home, 1-1, and then the Edmonton game, again, we talked about that. It's a, a young Edmonton team full of Canadians, and they had a player sent off. So we need to be guarded, uh, as you alluded to earlier, about uh, you know how good Toronto FC are in those games, because the Seattle game was really, really, truly, and I know we've said uh, in past podcasts there's going to be 15 games before we're going to know where Toronto FC but uh, are for the rest of the season, but this particular game, I think, highlighted... Uh, in those two teams and the gap that probably Toronto FC are at now with, uh, with making the playoffs, because it was huge. There was an almighty gulf in every department. I wrote a column last year and went, when um, uh, Toronto FC played Seattle uh, at Quest Field, and I said, which, which Toronto FC player would be able to play, or which Toronto FC players would be able to play for, for uh, Seattle? And there wasn't too many that would be able to make their starting lineup. And based on what I saw the other night, uh, they got Casey Keller in goal, so maybe Stefan Fry would be part of their, their squad. But I don't see, quite frankly, too many players. I don't see any other player on that Toronto FC team that could play for Seattle. And I think that says so much. Now, Aaron Vinter, after the game, was scrambling. And yeah, I could see, you know, I, I actually like uh, uh, Vinter, I have to say that. Because he's, he he really looks like he looked like he was hurting in his face and his body language, and he was scrambling to say what really truly was the issue there, you know. And the, the problem is, and again, it sounds um, it sounds patronizing, knowing his background, knowing he comes from. But the reality is, coaching is a lifelong learning process, and he is inexperienced as a coach, and so along the way, I think he's making some mistakes. And what what he Overemphasized, I think, which was a mistake. Is that he talked about the fact that we kept playing the long ball, we kept playing the long ball, and we want to play possession, and we need to be better, and we need to be better. The problem he has, though, is is that Seattle know that, other teams know it, and they pressured them so well. I thought Seattle were brilliant, first of all, on the ball, but second of all, how they approached and, and closed down uh, Toronto FC. So what does it come to then? You know, the bottom line, which he didn't say this, and maybe he's guarded on it, maybe needs some thought, but it's like, uh, you know, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You know, it's a, it's a metaphor for the fact that the bottom line in that game is, is that player for player, Toronto were not good enough they didn't have the amount of talent so it doesn't matter how much you preach and say that you want to play possession say that you want to you're expecting more from your players if you don't have the horses you can't compete and that clearly was the biggest issue for me the second thing is is the defensive side of the game for Toronto FC and that's where they really can't compete as far as a player Julian de Guzman he's created a great goal the other day but There is no way he can compete on a defensive side at the top level of this MLS. I mean, it's just so apparent, yet we make excuses all over the place. And I tell you this, is that Aaron Vinter sees it. He might not come out just yet, but he's subbed him. And this is why I like Aaron Vinter, is that he's he's made a poor decision in making uh, Santos captain. But he takes him off because he doesn't perform. And he takes Julian de Guzman off because he doesn't perform. That was a problem for Toronto FC in the middle of the park. They could not compete defensively. Julian de Guzman is a problem there, but everybody says he's defensive midfield, but he's definitely not. I don't think he can have a major impact now. The game is almost passed him by, and it is completely obvious in that game. If you re-watch that tape, that's how Toronto FC operate. It's that they're always they're always building up players. That's their modus operandi to always you know, be the positive. Instead of calling it like it is, I think they would get much more respect from their supporters in the crowd. But this game was such a benchmark. It's the poorest I've seen them play, and they were clearly out of their depth in so many departments. And defensively, they couldn't compete. Forget on the ball for now. Just talk about defensively. They couldn't compete. And it started with Julian, uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in the middle of the park. And I, I, I tell you this, in, in, in defense of Julian, I, mean, I, I really liked Julian as a player. You know, when, uh, when I coached him as, uh, as an under-20 coach. And Julian, for us, we, we went into the CONCACAF championships and we beat El Salvador 1-0, Mexico 1-0. He scored both goals. We, we played the state, in the States in Rhode and beat them 2-1, and Julian scored the winner. He popped up all the time, Julian, and scored goals. And it was, it was you know, but things change. He goes into a different culture. People see different things. But I, I don't see anymore his uh, ability to influence the game. He lacks the confidence. Uh, he lacks certain techniques because of the way he was developed as a youngster and yet we're fitting him in and I, I in many ways I feel for him I really do because he's got the 1.7 million dollar tag on his uh, over his head and the expectations are huge so I imagine that there is as much as he enjoys picking up his paycheck and his uh, his lifestyle is healthy the fact is is that he's got competitor, and he wants to compete. He doesn't want to be performing poorly. But the bottom line is it's an illusion at this stage. You know, I feel that he's, uh, that he's treading water. He can't, he can't really compete in the position he's played. I don't know whether there's somewhere else he can compete and have the influence that he needs to be. But I can tell you this. My read is through body language and facial expressions of Winter. He knows it. Like, he's beginning to see that, oh, my gosh, he, his expectations of Julian – are, in, are based on what he's read and seen and, and, uh, and from the past, but he can't. He's beginning to figure it out. That all of a sudden it's going to be a little bit of a hindrance, and so that's a really interesting dynamic to see what happens. Now, as the season goes, because uh, because for me, they have to correct that in the middle of the park. And I, I hope Julian can do it for sure. But on this particular performance, that's the worst that I've seen in play. And it, there can be no excuses about injury. There cannot be any more excuses about the turf. I mean, it, it, or players around or the coaches, which is, you know, the, the a microcosm of how we've approached Canadian soccer over the past decade and a bit. Um, it was a poor, poor performance from Toronto FC. and I, I think Vinter is edgy. I think he's uh, he's going to really, really start questioning how difficult this uh, particular job is.
1: It's hard not to see how poorly on Santos is playing since becoming team captain. Even against Edmonton, despite two goals, his level of energy and effort looked very poor. This is the captain of the team, and it's obviously not looking good right now that Aaron has appointed him in the position of captain when he clearly that doesn't appear to be up to the task or the responsibility is it just the case that Brazilians are notorious for not liking playing in cold weather or, or is there something else going on there?
0: No, I don't think it's anything to do with that. I think it's uh, it's different culture for sure, different environment, but again it comes down to um over time you see the flaws in players you see whether they're they're good enough how much of an impact they can have and it's like terry dunfield you know i questioned terry dunfield the other day because he's you know was a little bit hot and cold there for for one game but you know when you reflect you know midweek and then against columbus he's he's in and out like he he came came back and he responds and does well and puts in a couple of great performances but if you have one poor performance another poor performance or you don't you know, continually don't show the kind of effort or passion or you look to be struggling all the time, which San- Santos all of a sudden is doing, is that, uh, again, you've got to read that writing. And it, uh, I-, I believe when we did a podcast five weeks ago and, and we said about him being captain, and um, I-, I, was, I was a little bit confused by it because I wasn't overly sold with, uh, with Santos. I think he has potential and he can, he can hit it once in a while. But overall, I thought it was a risk. Not a risk to keep him as a player. He has enough to be kept in that squad and to, to play here and there, and he has some good performances. But to have captain, I think your question is, uh, is warranted, and I think it's right. It, and, uh, and that's what I say about being an inexperienced coach. For Aaron Vint today, he's made a mistake. There's no doubt about it he's made a mistake. You can't be keeping uh, your captain on the, on the sidelines or keep bringing your captain off or serving him because he's not playing well. You know, you need to have your captain. You choose a captain based on the fact that, first and foremost, they're going to play all the time, which is Stefan Fry to me. Second of all, that they have great character, and great character means you need to be loyal to the coaching staff, to the club, to your players. You need to be great attitude, great working. In, in terms of adversity, you need to show a positive approach, and you need to uh, show leadership at all times. And that, that to me, is, uh, is uh, Stefan Fry right now. He's the real only one that you could say could play game in, game out. And so, um, at least he had him as his sort of sub captain. I think that that at least saved Aaron Vincer on that one. But uh, May Santos, I think, is uh, is proven that that was a courtesy.
1: One thing that hasn't been mentioned yet about the uh, Seattle match is the fact that Seattle is coached by uh, Siggy Schmid, who's one of the uh, best coaches in the league, and um, he had. I think he really had the team geared up after. Um, they lost one of their best players to a horrific leg break in in the last game. Game Steve Zacowani. Uh you know, what are your thoughts on Siggy Schmidt? And, and you know, there's a real comparison there between him and Winter, as Winter's starting out his uh, his MLS career.
0: Yeah, it is, and I think that you know, without being fair, what you know, what are Toronto FC going to do now? You know, I mean, it's been a disaster from. From the, from the get-go on a technical level here and they're scrambling. So, but I like Aaron Vint, I really do. I mean, it, the only th- criticism I would have now at this stage around Aaron is and two, is one that he's, uh, he's really inexperienced as far as coaching on a professional level. And then also the ideology that he wants to impart, like immediately. But if you don't have the horses and you try to do that, they are going to get thumped this year. There's no doubt about it. They're going to go into some games and if they do what Aaron Vincent always wants to do, that they're going to get thumped, I'm afraid. But aside from those things, I think he for sure has and brings a lot of qualities to, to the table, and I think he's edgy, and I think he definitely gets whether a player is good enough, and uh, good enough. And he's not afraid to make tough decisions, whereas other coaches that have been in there, unfortunately including Nick Dasevich last year, didn't show that tough edge where they were prepared to sit players, but uh, a sort of fan favorites, sort of some segments of fan favorites. So, Bint no problem there. Siggy Smith and, and here's the comparison of Siggy Smith and, and Aaron Vinter with, with Toronto FC and the risk that Toronto FC have taken, or MLSC, is that when you look at Siggy Smith, at every turn, every single turn, there's not one corner you can really go to with Siggy Smith. Uh, you, you know, I mean, there's maybe well, I think one, I think he was in uh, L.A. there for a very brief period. But every turn, aside from that, he's been successful as a coach. like, And not just... Uh, limited success, but huge success from the under-20 national program with the U.S. team, uh, you know, right through at, at Columbus. And it shows, you know, it shows in the way Seattle played the other night. I thought they were absolutely fantastic. They definitely were uh, were uh, motivated. I mean, Toronto FC, you know, to be fair to them, went in and, and were, were playing against somebody that was really wounded. They were playing against a team that were wounded by the uh, by the injury um, and so, therefore, they, they really got uh, put under pressure from the get-go. But uh, Siggy Smith is a terrific leader. He's a very savvy coach. And the way that Seattle played was uh, they really took Toronto FC to the cleaners, playing what uh, you, we would expect, I suppose, in Canada, of what uh, we would expect uh, Toronto FC to play based on their philosophy and ideology of possession football. It was all over the park. They uh, dominated, I so thought they were terrific.
1: The Vancouver Whitecaps did a little better than TFC on Saturday, but still came away with a loss against Columbus. What are your thoughts on the Caps' 2-1 defeat to the Columbus crew?
0: Yeah, I was uh, disappointed. Um, and here's my thing with, with that particular game. So it, it's a it's a strategy, going with a tactical approach, okay? And, and Tater and Colin Miller and Dennis Hamilton would have, I suppose, said, well, we're going to drop off. I actually thought that they gave columbus way too much respect and if if you go into games and you're trying to conserve energy because you're worried about the next games coming up i think that's a that's a huge mistake you go in and and so i'm assuming that they weren't dropping off to conserve energy i'm assuming that they went as a tactical approach this is how they're going to win the game and it backfired or it it didn't work out let's say because they lose 2-1 but i thought they showed columbus way too much respect when i saw columbus again as I said earlier, against Toronto FC, I thought, "Wow, this is a very beautiful team. They're not as good as what they uh, they have been in the past, and uh, they don't have the impact players like scolotto that uh, that was a real, real handful." And so, I would say that they they got that wrong. And and when you drop off against them, it's that it's one thing to drop off and be organised, and they definitely were that. But defensively, they made mistakes, and they and it was it was apparent at key moments all through the game where at the back or in midfield they didn't track runners they didn't close the ball down like in line with the ball, in line with the goal they didn't do it really with purpose they always looked susceptible to making a mistake and leathers I thought at right fullback was very poor I thought down the right side where Knight and leathers were poor um, and got be continually with the little one too. It's like some you close the ball down, and forgive me for being so technical to uh, your listeners here, but if you close the ball down and the player that you're closing down plays the ball and makes the run, you have to go with the runner. And they don't do that. So I think Terry Dunfield Uh, As a criticism of him in this game, with the second goal, he closes down the ball with no real purpose to stop the the ball getting played forward and then didn't go with the runner. It didn't impact him as far as that player getting the ball and scoring the goal, but it opened up space uh, for the other Columbus player up front to, to go through. I mean, you know, so for me, Vancouver, when they go forward, they look dangerous. They were 2-0 down, and then they, they started to attack, and they gave Columbus real problems. They, they created chance after chance after chance, and it sort of suggested to you that they got their, their approach and tactics wrong, that had they have gone after Columbus from the get-go, that they would have been far, far more successful. The bottom line with Vancouver uh, is, and, um, and I'm not having a laugh, as James Sharman would say, to uh, Colin Miller or to Tater here, but if I was to advise them, or if it was me as a coach, and I know I'm fanatical about defending based on uh, the coaching programs I suppose that I took, we are always behind the eight ball, so I always was fanatical about defending. And I see it with Vancouver. If I was Vancouver, on the training field, I would not do anything right now except defend, 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 individual defending and then collectively as a team with purpose to know what it is to drop off. It's not about dropping off and letting the team have possession and then when the ball goes into your player, you don't track him and follow the runner or you don't look to get a block or you don't close the ball down in line with the goal and know what goal side is. Those things for me, over time and particularly against Columbus, if you watch that tape again, they definitely got those things wrong and sooner or later over a 90 minute game it doesn't matter how organized you look it's, it's all a bit uh, it's all a bit fake because it only takes one chance or one slip of, uh, of one player getting it wrong and not tracking his player or not closing the ball down at the right time for it to, uh, to be a goal. You don't see that at the World Cup level when you have two Giants playing each other. You know, England against Argentina. It's so tight defensively. They just don't make those mistakes because it's been drummed into them. It's actually repetition on the training field over years and years and years that creates that. And to me, that is so Vancouver, when they go forward they don't need to worry about looking about going forward right now or working on going forward in their training sessions and I'm exaggerating here a little bit, but you know what they do need to work on because they're going to be able to do that they look good going forward and they're going to create chances they're going to score goals so what they need to do is to stop conceding goals and to do that it's technical flaws and tactical flaws of how they do it as individuals and knowing that and I know it's uh, you know I mean Colin's a friend, and, and Tate, that's how I feel. I'm very passionate about that, and when I when I see that go on, I think it's the same with Stephen Hart at uh, the, the World Cup level. Is that, that That's what Stephen Hart needs to get right, and I think he is. I think he's getting it. I think he sees it, and uh, he's got the right personnel to do it. The other thing with Vancouver, that's a question. I, again, I thought Leathers, Leathers was really poor. I thought the Rashard on the other side, uh, left full base, absolutely fantastic player, really like him. Um, you know, and uh, but I don't think they're quite good enough at the back. I don't think they're quick enough, and I don't think they have a real pedigree defender which they need to find. But overall, Vancouver and Toronto FC, I think Vancouver right now look like that they're going to get through this difficult period, this difficult time, figure out how to get results. They have some really, really good tools. They got some. They brought in some excellent players. There's no doubt.
1: Paul, last week you posed a question to Paul James on soccer, listeners asking them to give their thoughts on why they think there are so few Canadians playing, or at least starting, for the Canadian MLS teams. I'm going to read you several of the comments that we received and then I'd like to get your thoughts on the matter. TFC fan said, with respect to Paul's question about why there are only three Canadians playing on the Canadian MLS teams, I think it's a complex question, but I see four main reasons. One, the U.S. has ten times the population of Canada, so it has a larger player pool. Two, the reduction of the quota for Canadian players on the Canadian teams. Three, The best Canadian players want to play in the best leagues in Europe for better money. Four, the NCAA is the direct feeder for the MLS draft. Robbie said, My understanding is that outside of the top talents who can go to Europe, Canada has not had a place for young players to keep improving and developing once they reach a certain age. The academies of TFC, Vancouver, Montreal, etc. are supposed to fix this. And Canuck said, It's an American soccer league, pure and simple. It was designed to promote American soccer and the U.S. national team. Canada is caught between a rock and a hard place. It can't support a national league of its own, but has next to no say in how the MLS is run, even given the fact that by next year, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver will be three of the league's strongest franchises. What do you think, Paul?
0: Yeah, I think those are excellent responses. And what's exciting about that is the fact that, uh, you know, supporters out there are thinking and they can see the, the issues that uh, that we have in Canada. And uh, I thought all those responses have uh, have some relevance. And, I, I, you know, the, the problem that I see that we have in Canada, even with three MLS franchises and then with Edmonton, is that you still, we just, you know, to get the opportunities for Canadian players to play, we have to be innovative. We have to cast the net wider. And how we do that is going to, tra- is going to create some, some vision, you know, because at, at the end of the day, in an academy team, how many players can you have, 20, 26 uh, young players playing? In a country as big as we are, it's hardly, you know, uh, to have 80 players with a professional opportunity is still not great enough. And, and, and a lot of those won't be Canadians because they, uh, you know, Vancouver, for example, go around the world to, to recruit those academy players. But uh, over time, I think it is going to change. I think more and more players that are younger, when they see these games on TV, the more exposure. The media is fantastic. We've got so many people having an opinion in the media, which I think is so healthy, because it exposes the game here. And younger players uh, at the 7, 8, 9, 10 years of age, seeing it on TV in their face all the time, will be motivated. But here's the, here's the problem, for example. Let's just take Toronto FC. Toronto FC in, in the city of Toronto, so they're going to do an academy, let's say, for eight, nine, ten-year-olds, let's say ten-year-olds, ten, eleven, twelve-year-olds. So they get 20 ten-year-old players in, into their system, in the program. But there's no guarantee. What about the rest of the players of that age group in all different parts of the province of Ontario, up from Ottawa down to Windsor, into London, into Sarnia? You know, how do you, how do you uh, allow for that when you just select a group of players that you have in training, uh, at a young age group, because it's been proven time and time again that the players that you have that are ten, eleven, twelve, you know most of them won't end up making it you know down the road, and even when you have players at sixteen, seventeen year old players that are in academies, they don't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to make it even after two or three years of training. And how do you expose the rest of the players around the country? that you can't cater to because we don't have a professional team on every doorstep like they do in Holland, in Germany and England. You know, and, and I think that's where you need to be innovative and, and for me in, in the past, you know, it, it, I've always said about the missed gem here is the CIS, the Canadian Inter University system. And it's not about always going into they always have to go onto university and degrees. I think it's about utilising that system where they become part of the development process. So, for example, they could have satellite uh, satellite uh, training academies if the MLS teams in Canada were smart and to engage CIS and to engage the CSA to be able to work together. Those three organizations, MLS teams in Canada, the CIS and the CSA, because if you cast that net, then you have 17 universities in, in Ontario and, and they all ran little academies that were really to cater to Toronto FC or Vancouver, whoever it may be, then all of a sudden, you know, your 10 and 11 and 12-year-old players in each one of those areas of the province of Ontario or in BC or in Quebec, all of a sudden, you're casting that net much further, and you are creating motivation at players at a young age to be able to compete and play, and to want to play and to want to get and I want to do it. And that is about building infrastructure, which I don't think, you know, we don't take too much uh, time or thought to be able to think of those things. And, you know, there's plenty that you could criticize, criticize with that idea, but it's that kind of thinking, I believe. That, um, that needs to take place at some point. Otherwise, it's going to take a long time, because as the, uh, the, uh, the readers have uh, made with their comments, we definitely have some disadvantages, including the fact that we just don't have the same population that uh, the United States has. But look at the United States, it's because they have the population, but they also have unbelievable infrastructure, soccer infrastructure, from the collegiate system at the NCAA down to the Wiley league to the, the systems that feed that, to the ODP program. It's absolutely unbelievable. And to compete with that on a numbers basis is, uh, is, in, is impossible for us. But we need to be doing better. We need to be hitting above the weight. But to take that, you need a visionary. And right now, really, MLSE with the Tom Insamis and, and that, without being disrespectful on a technical level, he's a terrific businessman. But um, but where's that vision going to come from? Aaron Vinter and uh, Bob de Klerk will begin to figure things out, but they've got so many things on their brains right now, just worrying about the day-to-day things. But it's um, you know it's going to take something uh, something special and some kind of leadership from uh, from those guys at the top, including Bob Lenarduzzi, to open up their minds because it's not about short term, you know. Everybody thinks short-term, the next two or three, five years. It's about thinking about 15 and 20 years' time. But if you really want to do something significant on the world stage with developing more and more Canadian players, you've got to really think outside the box and be creative. And that takes visionaries. But great answers from
1: uh, from the listeners. If you have questions that you'd like Paul to address, please send your email to pauljames at rednationonline.ca.